stay, at least until the Iliad is over. I linger in the lines, barely turning pages to slow what's coming. Achilles dies after the book is over. He meets the fate he chooses. Armor cannot even shield a half-god warrior. I cannot shield you in my caring. Stay until the snow has melted in the mountains where you live. I know my ashes and bones will go into the earth, and I feel fabulous. How can it be that anyone can yield so happily? Truer expanses I may not see, mired in expansive truths, philosophers deciding what the world is not, color into centuries defined by kings, geometry, chiaroscuro, constellations, countryside, which brings me to the mountains where you live, light, uplift, love, all remains in grays for me. You rapture into colors unseen on this planet. When is time you're switching into? How do you keep switching keys for me in the piano I keep wanting? I will buy it when you're hiking Jupiter with your ski poles and angelic wings to buoy your steps. I memorize your face consumed with whitening illness. I revealed the first time I took ecstasy was in your house on a clear, cold day. The snow was a meter fallen, enough to tromp through in a daze. Hours elated by a rambling brook, so endless was snowstorm and love, it seemed to me then. You have been such a blessing in my life, you said, and I practically yelled, you are a blessing. I write through tears. I write, you are beautiful inside. You tell me when your youngest son brought me home to you that sometimes you just know. Because of you, I know how a woman can be. I know there is a sparrow fluttering inside the free and vicious eagle of me. The shield Hephaestus forges for Achilles, promises balance, season, dance, harvest, cosmos. Even in war, a new season arrives on the heels of death, on the heel of Achilles when the Iliad is over. You are upbeat, feeling lucky that long life has been so full of love. Patroclus is dead. Achilles avenges his love in fields of blood. He won't stop grieving. Will this be me as well? My soul in two. Desperate Priam begs for the body of his son, and only then Achilles weeps. He returns Hector to his father. He is becoming more human, by which he is dying of anger, choosing unfading glory over old age. You have gotten the better of the bargain at 88. Turn the page, I tell myself, and turn it, crying. The story of Achilles is a tale of rage inside the battle to live. Deaths pile up. Soon you'll greet your lover who died last year. I inch through sentences, pretending time rewinds, but it does not. There is a kind of peace. Each warrior rests his head upon the soil differently, as if saying we are unlike in how we die, but equal at the end. That was Diane Meta reading Stay. It's a beautiful, lyrically dense, and emotionally charged poem. It's one of three new works published by Diane in the latest issue of Airlight. Hi, and welcome to the Airlight Podcast. I'm Aaron Winslow, Managing Editor of Airlight, and today I'm happy to host a conversation with two incredible poets, Diane Mehta and Jordan Smith, whose poems are also published in the newest Airlight. Diane was a student at Union College where Jordan teaches, and even though they were never in the classroom together, the resonance between their work is obvious. Both are poets of the particular, of the moment. The world around them provides entryways into deep memories both personal and historical. 
Diane and Jordan write poems that bend time and space, and the ancient world is a constant presence in the now. In Jordan's poem, Good Morning, burnt coffee in Schenectady sits alongside the fairy to Pyresis in classical Athens. Tree trimming in Diane's rock garden connects us to the Iliad and the blood sacrifices of early religion. It's thrilling work. Jordan Smith is the author of eight full-length books of poems. Most recently, Little Black Train, winner of the Three Mile Harbor Press Prize, Clare's Empire, a fantasia on the life and work of John Clare, and The Light in the Film. He has also worked on several collaborations with artist Walter Hatke, including What Came Home and Hat and Key. The recipients of grants from the Guggenheim Foundation and the Ingram Merrill Foundation, he lives with his wife, Mally, in upstate New York, where he is the Edward Everett Hale Jr. Professor of English at Union College. Diane Mehta is the author of the poetry collection Forest with Castanets, out on four-way books. She received a 2020 Spring Literature Grant from the Café Royal Cultural Foundation for her nonfiction writing. Her poems and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, Harvard Divinity Bulletin, Agni, American Poetry Review, The Common, Harvard Review, and Southern Humanities Review. She's completing an essay collection and a novel set in 1946 India. Diane and Jordan are truly spectacular poets, two of the best working poets today. So I, of course, asked them to start off by talking about their approach to writing essays. I think I came a little bit late to the essay writing uh, idea. I had been, I'd written short reviews, short reviews of poetry. I'd written essays and, you know, um, I'd written occasional essays, but it wasn't really until the last, you know, 10 years or so, really around, I suppose around the time of my father's death that I began writing, that I began getting a little more seriously interested in, in writing essays. And I wrote a short piece about him for, <laughs> for, for a journal. And I, and I found it a lot of what I had to, what I was thinking about with my dad had dovetailed with what I was thinking about music, which seemed a little odd to me because although he liked music, we didn't share a lot of tastes. It had something to do with his background. I mean, he grew up in the in the rural cats in the rural Catskills, and uh, it always seemed like a kind of mysterious upbringing to me. I still haven't been able to trace who all the relations are. There's a grandmother I just can't place, can't find her family or and um but something about the upstate new york landscape that he loved to draw drive through and uh, stop at historical markers and tell me the stories of the markers connected with me with the kind of old-time country music that i was listening to it wasn't exactly the lyrics it wasn't exactly the tunes it was a sort of edgy uncomfortable violence that was almost present in the music which might make an interesting uh, connection and diane with some of your with some of your poems and your interest in the iliad too i was thinking as i was reading through and there was something something uh in that that seemed to want want explaining to me and to be honest i've been trying to explain that in poetry to myself ever since i was first year grad student in my first um uh my my first thesis manuscript of poems was called Sugar in the Gourd and was named after a fiddle a, a fiddle tune about getting your eyes poked out and going into the wrong place at the wrong time. And I don't think I've ever satisfactorily gotten to the bottom of this, but when David St. John asked me to write an essay on poetry and music for Air Light, I got I tried I, I took another run at it to see what would, would come up would come out of that. Somehow I think the essays 
the discursiveness of essays is just has allowed me to be a little more exploratory about that, to ask a few more questions where I tend to think of poetry as being a little more focused on the experiential side of it rather than the um, you know, sort of headier side of it. I think po- for me, poetry is the more the experiential side of it, you know, what it was like. Uh, essays are more the, why did this happen? Essays strike me as more, sorry, essays, the afterthought. Poetry seems like immersing yourself into it, even if there's some removal of time. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I think it's an interesting way to put it, though, the um, sort of the why um, versus the experiential part. I, 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 I also did sort of came to essay writing maybe less than 10 years ago, um, maybe more than five, and thinking that, uh, the, and I write a lot of, in a lot of different genres, but I always thought that essays were the only genre that I would never be able to do. And this came about from many years ago, decades ago, reading Emerson's essay on circles, which I hated and I didn't understand. And I thought, never, ever will I write an essay. It just makes no sense. What is the point of an essay? I understand journalism. I understand this. And um, at some point, a number of things unraveled in my life. And I just ended up writing an essay about being unable to read um, while I was writing part of my novel, which I am still writing. And suddenly I started writing essays in a kind of voice that I didn't expect. And over time, those that I think for me, those two parts, the experience started more recently as I've gotten better at it merging. So instead of just telling a story, I'm trying to embody kind of mimetically the way I do in poetry, a way that anyone might in poetry, and Jordan certainly does this in his poems, you might mimetic a kind of feeling and a consciousness that's moving, that's coursing through the poem. And for me, that then got a little bit more cemented by thinking about Henry James and his stream of consciousness as this incredibly controlled structure, which I hadn't thought about it that way. I thought of him as a very controlled, brilliant parlor talking kind of Dostoevsky. And <laughs> and then I had a friend tell me something about, you know, I see what you're doing in essays, you see what you're doing. And I said, no, I'm just sort of winging it. And he said, well, if you think about Baldwin and what he's doing, I'm going to find, you know, this spot for you where he talks about the, you know, essentially he's embedding a sermon in the essay. And I thought this was a brilliant way of thinking about the essay. So he found all these little embedded sermons that I was doing, which helped me, I think, cut to the chase a little bit quicker and save myself maybe a couple months per essay. So I think of the essay as a kind of embedded sermon. So it becomes closer to music. It becomes a little bit closer to to poetry because the kind of poets I like, religious poets especially, have attempted sermons, um, some well, some not so well, like Hopkins. The, The idea of putting a sermon and moving around that stream of consciousness and trying to find a thread through it ends up being the thing that I'm really good at in poetry. And what I'm not good at in poetry has always been traditionally over time finding a structure. And then eventually I thought in other genres, genres, I'm, I'm still having the same problem with structure. And then with essays, I realized, oh, here I can actually start bringing in the things that I'm good at at poetry, which is a kind of vividness, a language or rhythm. And now I have to go back and find the structure. And then putting in the structure in the essay started shifting back to poetry and helping me find a more careful structure there. So it sort of wound in um, a little bit more with me as mixing. I was thinking as you were talking, Diana, as a little bit of a tangent, um, that for because I was for me the essays are about revealing secrets, and poets poetry is about framing the secret in a way that it might be intuited but not admitting to it in a, that that way. And you know, I, I don't. So the essay seems like a more I was going to say confessional form. I don't actually really like confessional essays. I really like essays where 
something gets revealed under the pressure of the necessity to say it to make sense of what the essay started off to be about that that way that way and i was thinking you mentioned baldwin i love baldwin's essays and i think there's that you know feeling as is in the you know the wonderful essay on uh, about his about his father and his father's bitterness you know and the way it, that starts off with the uh, the son's resentment against the the father and it ends up exploding into this understanding of the way the culture has shaped that anger that's going on between the father and son and between the bald one and the, and the people he encounters around him, say, when he goes off to work in the defense plant in New Jersey. Yeah, Baldwin is a big influence me on, on me as well. You know, you and I, I think share um, an aversion for the confessional. Not that we refuse to say anything personal in, in our poems or essays, but but this this insistence on language and on this idea that there should be some sort of form and structure and within, within a poem, also within an essay, but certainly within a poem and there should be some decision-making and Jordan, you mentioned in one of your notes to me, something about rationality, trying to hang on to um, moving faster something. You said something about moving faster through stanzas, even though you're a very rational person, which I found was sort of fascinating. And I kept, I'm mulling over this still. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. I'll try. When I first started, I remember when I was in my first poetry workshop as a freshman, uh, I remember the um, other students in my MIT saying, you know, you're just too rational. And, you know, everything in these poems is making too much sense. You are, and everything's too clear. You've got to, you've got to be able to, to mess around a little bit more than you do. And I found this, this was this brick wall I banged my head against. I didn't feel like for, you know, maybe almost until I was almost ready to go to graduate school was to find some way of making um leaving ellipses between stanzas you know uh, leaving leaving space for the reader to get in and figure something out uh leaving space for me to accidentally discover something um you know one of the um one of the poetic dicta at that time was robert bly's idea of leaping poetry you know that you should be jumping from stanza to stanza line to line and you know as much as i liked that idea i was damned if I could do it. You know, I didn't, you know, I just didn't quite, it took a very long time to trust my, trust myself to learn to sort of write a stanza or a couple of lines and then wait for what occurred to me to put in next without making much of a, a judgment about, about looking for the reason and then just writing it down and seeing how it looked, you know, and then kind of repeating that process of attention and waiting. And there it was, there it was again. I'd always wanted to be, in the, be the kind of writer who sat down for three or four hours, you know, and just, you know, worked until he'd gotten it right. And I've never in my life been that kind of writer. Um, it was always a matter of waiting for the poem to show up and then following it wherever it wanted to go. But it took me a, quite a long time to accept that that was going to be the process that was going to work work best for me. Good morning. I drink coffee so strong it burns. The leaves scatter across the lawn, currency from a failed insurrection. In the drawer of the fake colonial desk in the living room, Canadian loonies, Swiss francs, even a few marks and drachma, keepsakes. Athena's owl on one worn coin, worthless, wings folded. If she needs darkness to fly, she needs only the little patience the world is asking of all of us. Patience, not wisdom. A few brown leaves still on that oak that should come down. It must be 50 years now since that coin came to me, change for a coffee while I waited for the ferry in Piraeus, as dark as this, as bitter. The kernels were just gone. The students in the lounge quoted Ritzos. It was easy to get a taste for the grit left at the bottom of the tiny cups. 
it was it was interesting because after I wrote that letter to you, I went back and I took a I reread the poems from Air Light, and I decided to try to track what was going on in in them, um, especially in the coffee poem, you know, at the beginning. Which I, when I wrote it, I thought I don't know what I'm doing, what this is. I don't know what I'm doing here, you know. And I sent it to one friend of mine who kind of agreed with me, and I thought, well, you know, he's usually right, so maybe I don't know what I'm doing. But I couldn't let go of the poem. I was, you know, something wouldn't let me, I, I, it didn't seem like it was going to just disappear on me. And, and I, I'd look back and I think he, he wanted a tighter ending. I'd say, no, uh, those are the words that showed up. That's what I want. That's supposed to be there. Um, I won't want to have to write an exam on this poem, but I'm pretty happy with how, how, how this poem looked. When I went back and reread it after talking with Diane, I was able to track connections through the poem that I hadn't been aware of when I was writing them there, there are things that were a lot more, there was a lot more coherence than I had anticipated as I was, I was looking at Because what you said about space just really hit me because I wrote down, I have a giant letter, giant word here, space right next to (laughs) next to this title, because what I noticed is you were also talking about shifts from book to book. And I'm so impressed that you were able to shift your style and, and have some psychological space between your books um, I only have one book, so I'm not doing that, but I'm having different periods of work. So I thought that this poem was remarkable because one, you have space, you're shifting from couplets to tercets, and you also have a lot of space between the ideas. So I kept getting lost and thinking, what is this about? What is this about? So you were not clear and rational as I wanted to be, but the actual mm. phrases, the sentences, each on their own, kind of like Ashbury, were very clear. And then you have this this huge amount of space in between it. And then you shift over to Greece and what it was like and the grit and you leave with this grit in your mouth back to the coffee, which I thought was brilliant. So I loved this poem. So I actually tracked it too. And, and I'm, I'm a big admirer of this. And then it's about upheaval, right? It's about breaking and upheaval and you bring something in from the past and you bring it in again. And then here's what you left with. And this is something that flows along the course of time, which is something you seem to talk about everywhere. Even just, even your John Clare book, because you're pulling him back into the conversation through time, which um, the book itself is thrilling, but it's a different, I mean, there is some thread here through all of your work, even though you're saying there's this space in between it. So. Yeah, it's interesting. When I finished the Claire book and, and um, I, all of those poems are, are written in the same, in the same form. It's all the same, it's the same, same rhyme stanza all the way through. And there are about 50 poems and there were a few more that didn't make it into the book as well. Well, too, I had a really hard time stopping writing poems in that stanza form. Uh, and I, I just couldn't stop myself from doing it. And it took, I don't know, a year or more before I could write anything else. And I knew I should stop. I mean, there's, I knew it was time to quit with the, uh, uh, the six line rhyme stand, you know, three, six line rhyme stands a thing, uh, because I was just beginning to repeat myself or trying to apply it to, to material. It just, that just wasn't wor- working, uh, working for. I, I think, Diane, you know, one of the things we did sort of shift over to your your work as well, too, and maybe this will help help do that, is that I I think that the way I've been living the last year and a half really affected the new poems um, in ways that I didn't quite realize when I was writing them. Um, you mentioned space, and there's been a whole lot more space uh, involved. I mean, I'm not, you know, for a year and a half, I didn't drive into work every day, every other day or what, whatever my teaching schedule required me to do. I rarely saw anybody. I spent a lot of time walking. I've got dogs. I spent a lot of time walking dogs. And um, I spent a lot of time trying to, I spent a lot of time taking photos too, which isn't something I used to do very much. Um, just sort of had made sure I had my camera with me so I could 
could, if I saw something, I would just snap it that way. And I don't have any pretenses of being a photographer. I don't have any interest in post-production work on photos. I just was curious what I was seeing and what it would be like to re re record it. I was very influenced by way by, uh, uh, and, um, by a book by a writer that Diane knows as well, by Rob Charlotte's um, last book, which combined photos and Instagram posts and journalism, and which is just, uh, you know, uh, This Brilliant Darkness is the name of it. And it's just a fabulous book. And, and I was thinking about the way in which taking taking in photos of my, my phone might help me see things differently as I was writing. I thought maybe I'd write poems about the images, but I've never done, I haven't done that at all. Instead, I just tried to take the, discipline of being as open as possible to whatever interested me visually and try to and try to translate that over into the the more abstract world of writing of writing poetry that way and just to treat and just to let and there would always be you know i would never take a sequence of photos it would always be like what one or two a day you know and with lots of room between uh, between them and not a lot of critical judgment uh, except that that looks nice that looks right uh, I'll grab that, and um, and I think that affected a lot of the poems I was writing over the over the period, the last period, you know, 14, 15 months of lockdown. So I was wondering a bit if you had any thought of how uh, how that experience has affected what you were doing as a writer. We had fun writing back and forth about what we see as uh, for for two poets who I think feel really quite connected in what we're in what we're doing what we're doing. And we go about it in rather different in rather different ways. And I, one of the things I noticed in Diane's poem in Air, poems in Air Light was just the abundance of stuff in the poems. You know, so many really you know the backyard poem I'm thinking about. You know, and all of the all of the details that get into that as you're walking out in there looking for some kind of redefinition maybe of the of the of the self through that place and you get just get flooded with possibility of of things. Yeah, you know, actually Aaron, you had asked me something specific about the couplets in here and 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 there there is a lot of stuff going on in that poem. And you know, I'm gonna sort of respond to Aaron's question from earlier um, in our notes about the couplet is a way of explaining this poem and what happened. Well, I'm actually gonna, there's three of them. So I'm gonna read you the three couplets in the first poem, Rock Garden in the Backyard with the Ghost Tree and an Evergreen, because they're all foreboding in a way, in a way that maybe the couplet is not supposed to be. And in a way that the verse paragraph or stanza is largely not. It's more narrative and it's considering this life going on. So um, the first couplet after, I think it's 16 lines is, the storm cloud God is always overhead with his bolts. No sound is quiet here during the insect invading sun boiled route. The second couplet is, we wanted a yard unmarred by the blood of everywhere else. My son growing into realities clipped off ever larger branches. And the third couplet is, eight summers have come and gone now with my stump life, my still life, my spirit tree and oxygen leaves on my neighbor's tree. So, you know, the couplet traditionally is supposed to be epigrammatic and a kind of... Um, little bit of a summary or uh, something emphatic. I, I'm not rhyming, but what I think I'm trying to do is a little bit of accusation. And I mean, you know, the, the function of a couple is, let's say it's subordinate to the rest of the poem. You know, it's something that is kind of, it's on its own, but um, I wanted it to be a little bit of a, a reconciliation, a little bit of an accusation. So if you look at the first, if you think about the first 
the couplet that we were talking about, we wanted a yard unmarred by the blood of everywhere else. My son growing into realities clipped off ever larger branches. So the first idea, as I'm thinking about the Iliad and all of the war, and I'm thinking about the pandemic, I'm walking around in my yard, looking at the tree, looking at the tree house that the neighbor left after they left New York during the pandemic and the kid that used to play there. And I think, hmm, now we can chop down those branches because they were like, be very careful about these branches because you know we planted this tree 25 years ago. You might kill the tree if you chop off the branches. And I thought, they really make a mess in our yard. And so I thought, now it's time to be greedy and narcissistic. And I want to chop down. And I think we're not going to kill this tree. But either way, life feels very anarchic um, at this point. So we started chopping down the tree and we bought a big saw. And this time we let my son use it. So so he became the destroyer. And I tried to also take a turn of perspective in this poem saying, you know, the tree is rip accusing me of being this Medusa lady, this, this, this horrible person who's, who's turning things to stone, who's, redu- who's ruining things. And then I let him become that as well. But in the first half of the couplet, I said we wanted a place unmarred by the blood of everywhere, which is everything, all the bloodiness that's going on, um, our own war. And then I point out that the sun is helping clipping off these larger branches. He is now part of humankind. He's a human. And just like me, I am also the accused. So I want some reconciliation. You want some something good, but you also um, recognize it, that life is bloody and you're a part of it too. And and then of course, there's this, this um, thread of the Iliad going through this poem and also the next one with the war. And I mean, there's something that strikes me about both of y'all's work, because what you were just describing about the, you know, the the tree branch couplet and cutting down those branches, it's it's sort of, you know, it's a metaphor that verges on an allegory almost, but pulls back and is just very visceral. And I think both of y'all's work toys with this things with language becoming, yes, yeah, so, sort of in an unsettled space between metaphor, sometimes veering towards allegory, but not quite doing that. And I think that is a really interesting space that's really working the language. I think it's embedded in this idea of reading and visual art. And both Jordan and I are seem to be writing about this in different ways. We've he, he has a lot of references. He's writing about, you know, John Clare's a whole book about reading John Clare, who's a lovely rural, rural poet and creating a conversation with him. Um, and he writes quite a lot about visual art, as I am doing increasingly as well. And there's something about like the Auden Musée de Beaux-Arts, you know, about suffering. They were never wrong about this idea of going back to the past and, 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 and believing in something that was that existed and discovering just as all these other people have discovered, oh, <laughs> um, in fact, this is what happens and and this is our suffering. This is what suffering brings you to. And then, oh, there's um, there's there's the end coming and, and what are you supposed to do with it? And I feel like Jordan certainly does this very much or very rashly in, in a way. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm rational about it, but there is this approach to here is my life. Here's my very American life. You know, in one of your essays, you're driving, listening to a CD, you're talking about your dad and his hospice care, you're writing about fiddling. Fiddling is always exciting. Um, you're putting music in there, um, in your poems. And, and what is this life? What is next? What is, what are we going to be become? Oh, well, I guess this is it. And, and then there's this joy within the rhythm of the writing, within the rhythm of the music, within the looking and the observation of the paintings and the visual arts. And I, I feel that I'm increasingly doing that too. I'm writing more and more about ceramics. My son is doing ceramics and also 
about paintings and just about the experience of art and nature and all this coming together also as I get older. So I feel that that's one thing about getting older and discovering the course of time and what you do with it versus what you wanted when you were younger. But there is also something else about connecting to things that have been important and that have been established as a way of trying to figure out your way into the future and making your, your ordinary life, making those mo- those very ordinary moments much more meaningful. And for, for Jordan, that would be fiddling, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I one of the things that I, I think I'm interested in doing in, po- in, in poems, when especially when they involve what it involves, references to other works of literature, references to music, references to, to visual art. And I've collaborated a lot with my friend Walt Hackey, who's a, a terrific representational painter, um, is the to try to catch what's going on in my mind as I'm in the presence of these things or in the presence of something else in which um, those things and those things enter into it in some, in some way, I suppose that's a fancy way name for, you know, um, for Ashbery's, you know, moment of conscious moment of attention, you know, the self is the moment of attention. Uh, so that's a line from self-portrait in a convex mirror that I've had in my, in my head and heart for quite a long time. That idea that the self is what is, are all the things that are impinging on you at a given moment and that you are, uh, that you are aware of. And what I like about poetry is that you can be aware of their of that awareness. <laughs> you know, you can be say, you know, when I'm walking around and I, I have a, a piece of a fiddle tune I like to learn going through my head, or I have a, a few lines from Trenstrummer or the Tao going through my head, or I have, a, you know, I'm thinking about a, a, a one of Waters' paintings or another visual image that I uh, that I like. I'm trying to, uh, you know, I can only sort of pay a quick fleeting attention and I've got to make sure I'm not tripping over a route or driving through a stop sign or something like that. But when you're in the time of the poem where you have this kind of feels like infinite leisure to create this, you know, this moment to recreate it or enrich it that way. And it's a kind of, you know, zone outside of uh, you know, it's as the moment becomes a, a has a fullness at that point where you can bring almost any almost anything into it uh, that way. You know, and for me, that's a lot of the experience of it's the experience of listening to music or being in the presence of a piece of visual art too. You know, you're never um, again. This is something I've I've been mad at myself for for years that my con- my concentration is very fragmented and I'm never actually thinking about only one thing at a time. You know, there's always always this uh, disturbing lack of focus, and I've tried to make that defect into a virtue, I think, when I'm writing when I'm writing poetry and say, well, you know, the moment at which I'm looking at, out at the leaves, say, in the coffee poem and thinking about my, you know, my morning coffee as this sort of ritual of getting ready to deal with whatever weirdness is about to occur in, in, in the world. And I'm seeing the leaves and they remind me of Confederate money floating around, you know, and then I think, well, what's next? Well, I'm standing, I was standing by my desk, there are all these coins in this in this desk that reminds you know and just letting things be open to uh um letting myself try to be open to the things that are present in my consciousness and let them in- share that particular moment with with me explicitly and maybe at a little greater length than they would be if it were if what's up if i worry about trap what was actually going on in my mind you have this line in the one of the poems in airlight the wrong question one which i thought was a great title um you say over and over i am telling the way that cannot be told to no one my friend, and so you invite the reader in. When you next send me your broken lines, let me construe them for myself. But this just idea I am telling, I am telling. <laughs> when there's another. I, I, <laughs> okay. 
I, I have to tell you the story behind this uh, poem because I, I, because it's it's true. I mean, this was in the early days of the pandemic when we were all beginning to be, you know, getting sort of, uh, we're still in the weirdness of the idea that we were all working from home. And I have a good friend who's uh, works in works in government in DC. In DC, uh, we've been we've been friends for high school, and we've had lots and lots of uh, conversations and cordial disagreements over over the years. He called me up and he said, you know, I I just I use the I Ching. I ask it. Well, what should I intend? Which I thought was a pretty good question. And the I Ching said, wrong question. And I thought, <laughs> oh, thank you, Paul. <laughs> I'm not going to let this go to waste, believe me. And then I started playing around with the idea of oracles, you know, the idea that you can do an or you, you don't need to. You don't need to throw the coins or the straws. You can grab any book off your shelf and just open to a random page and that can serve as, a, as, as an oracle. And I just kind of focused on what came to mind. What came to mind was the Tao and what came to mind was Ovin and Kalafi, you know, those sort of uh, all sort of prophetic, you know, prophetic things, you know. And the challenge, I, I think, that a book like the Tao presents to you to try to find words for something that the book says right from the beginning, you're not going to be able to succeed at putting into words. You know, the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. You know that. And that one of the things that the poet does in response to a world that's becoming incredibly disordered is to keep putting into words something that can't be put into words, even if there's no one out there who's really, really listening to, to it. And I was happy that the ending got a, that the ending came back to emotion too in the and in, in that that as I let it sort of I let it sort of loop go out together in the uh, uh, the literary references and then I was able to get back to the actual person you know at the end of it and think that a lot of what was joining us as we were talking about uh, about this experience was the shared grief about what was going on even though we were having kind of a good time with the playing around with the concepts of of random oracles and and chants and figuring things out that way that way well the ending there is just beautiful how you found the heart how you found the heart just in itself or how how you found the heart for another throw of the coin so you know this is the world we unfortunately are living in (laughs) but how do you find the heart how do you what do you make of what's right in front of you now that we know that this is going to go on and on and on and each thing gets worse and worse and you think oh and uh, again, at some point, you have to think, okay, I still have to get this work done. And what can I make of this now? Um, because there may not be tomorrow, tomorrow, but maybe there will. Maybe there won't be in humankind in 60 years. But either way, whether these lines exist or our books exist or our lives exist, what can I make now? Which is a, it is a sort of microcosmic way of looking at the way we would look at our lives over time anyway. So it, it doesn't feel so far from that. And, and, and in that it's become a little bit familiar dealing with it in the way I know many people, especially writers are dealing with it. And I feel like maybe we're most equipped to deal with this because this is the kind of thing we're always doing and wondering about, you know, oh, what is life? What is death come? Death is coming. Uh Oh, death is coming. What is life? Um, so <laughs> doing that anyway, and we're, <laughs> we're mucking about in, in the dirt and, um, so maybe and the, and the I Ching keeps saying wrong question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious too because that just this conversation and talking about you know the you know Jordan's work with the with the I Ching and with thinking about this relationship between mm-hmm. just an individual and these kind of larger systems mm-hmm. that are beyond human control that are chance oriented or objective or somehow just outside of our scope. And then I was. It, it kind of reminded me, Diane, of this poem that that I, 
that, that you wrote that was in, I think it was an American Poetry Review about AI. Yeah. And it was kind of thinking about how the human relates to AI, which is another one of these contemporary systems that seems to somehow, you know, sit beyond us and over us. I feel like there's a thematic resonance there and thinking about how the individual relates to these systems, particularly at this, as you said, at chaotic moments like these. The whole systems thing actually is really interesting. You have words like systems and protocols and, and, I don't know, internet related kinds of things. You know, I spent a little time last year horribly working for a defense company. They offered me some money. I said, okay. Um, and so I was writing about cybersecurity and I learned a ton about cybersecurity, which actually ended up being really fascinating. Of course, they got hacked in the end, like everybody else. And so there were all these phrases like attack surfaces. And I thought it was all really thrilling. I thought, oh my God, all these ways they can like split channel things and 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 do this stuff. And, and I'm, you know, sort of moved a little bit from between journalism and um, or occasional journalism and working for companies doing uh, sort of thought leadership and writing about technology and innovation for a while. And so the AI came out of a little bit of that. And what, you know, what's funny and, and awful about AI is that it really hasn't changed all that much from 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And everybody likes talking about it and the CEOs don't really know what it's about. And everybody else doesn't really believe that it exists the way it really does exist. Like people say, that's not true. And I say, Oh, it certainly is, you know, and, <laughs> but there's this idea that we're all, you know, there's this fear and and hope that that machines can do things better than us, just like with the automated driving and or auto-tune or um, you know, all those 737s that crashed because of the way they were functioning, because everything was automated and pilots could pilots couldn't fight the software. Um, so the AI can certainly take over things, but not in an insidious way. I don't think there's anything but training that really gives AI any power. And of course, then you have these biases embedded in the, the training and you have this hope for AI as, as it can, you know, we have a lot of designers and, and technologists trying to figure out some way that it can be good, that we can make it good, that we can establish protocols, uh, safety guidelines and good ways of doing things, you know, on the internet. And um, which of course is, is, is a pipe dream. And and they they do believe that these are the same people that built all the systems that built the things like Facebook that built the um, in the big databases that created all the things that are, that are destroying us now say with misinformation or a million other ways and and my my hope or dream was to kind of get inside the AI and appreciate it but also attack it and 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 recognize that we are becoming machines we are becoming a little inhuman but we always were a little bit inhuman anyway and. But it is, is also a kind of um, fight and recognition that this this cannot entirely control us. I think I had overlapping ideas in there, but I really wanted to just sort of immerse myself in this concept of what, you know, what kind of beings we are. Uh, I don't believe for a second that AI can take over anything. I mean, all we do is train it. It thinks something is um, fried chicken. It makes a mistake. You give it another 10 million pictures and it, oh, there's the poodle. So, you know, that's that's the extent of it. <laughs> this is kind of a jump, but it's, I, 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 it's, I've been wondering lately about how possible how possible it is for us to see past our own other structures which we've become really familiar that way. I mean, there's been a lot of 
I've been paying a lot of attention to mushrooms lately. We've had an incredible mushroom season out here, and I'm not. I cannot. I can identify maybe two mushrooms with with a with a minimal degree of com- confidence. But I sure do like looking at them, and there've been tons of them just or just around, just around. And I and of course, there's also been a lot of writing about them lately. Um, there's a Merlin Sheldrake's book, Entangled Life, which looks at the and the idea of mycelial networks and these sort of uh, sort of under you know the for, you know the combination of roots and mycelium and forest as sort of a giant well network and I think that's a really attractive idea I mean I like the idea that there's a kind of consciousness at work that has almost nothing to do with me but it also struck me that that's an awfully obvious metaphor for us these days because we're surrounded by networks and you know structures like that and it really made me wonder oh, great these books are fascinating uh, the science is really interesting. How much of it is a metaphor for what we're, you know, I mean, how much of it is us unable to look at the, you know, unable to look at the winter and the snowman without thinking of the cold, you know, you know, as in, in, in the, in the, in the Stevens poem. I think in some ways I've been, not intentionally, but I've been avoiding metaphor in poems. I've been avoiding explicit metaphor in the favor of just seeing what there is to be said that, uh, that, that way. Um, and Diane mentioned that her son's working with with, cera- with ceramics. And I, when I was uh, when I was in high school I, and early college, I hung around with a lot of potters. You know, I, I have a good friend of mine um, who's uh, now t- who teaches um, film and video art at Cal Arts. Layden, Layden Pierce started off as a as a potter, and we we used to talk or you know hang around and have a lot of interesting conversations about about things. And I was often really envious of the balance of uh, intention and accident uh, that would be involved when he was throwing a piece. He was a pretty, uh, he's become a very experimental video artist and he was a quite experimental potter too when that, at that time. And, you know, and the way in which what he was doing, um, both in the process of on the wheel and the process of firing allowed for things, unexpected things to happen. And he would sort of sort it out later then and, and, and see. And I don't know, Diane, if you think about this at all, I, I mean, I, I find that really a difficult thing to reproduce in language, which always seems to me to want to be as a very intentional you know, that, that, that I, way. I love, I love that you're talking about this because I, I'm, I'm afraid that you probably do it without you realizing it. Cause I've been reading all your poems and you cannot write in that kind of rhythm as I've seen some of these more recent poems. And I've now looked through a lot of poems, plus even just the John Clare poems alone, you can't do that without doing exactly what you're saying. And this is something that I've actually decided that I've become really good at in the last one or two years. And I can tell when I'm cheating and something isn't working when I'm not doing it. So so it's like it's an easy way for me to figure out no this is crap let's put this aside um so there's you know there's this poem i wrote about about the pandemic about this funeral director that was published in the new yorker and that's when i felt myself doing it because i wasn't really writing nobody everybody it seemed on social media and all my friends had except for maybe one um were having a lot of trouble reading and everybody was reading very specific things i was reading paradise lost and really nothing else I couldn't read anything. I couldn't stand the idea of reading novels. I'm still struggling to read novels. I mostly want to read epic um, poems. And other people couldn't read this or couldn't read that. But I, I, like Jordan, was walking a lot. And I only have Prospect Park here in Brooklyn. So there are not really a lot of exciting mushrooms. Um, and um, <laughs> but, but you see, everybody was zigzagging all the time. And I couldn't really think of anything. I really, I, you want to express this grief. You want to say something in your because completely frozen there's this there was a sense of being terrified and frozen 
And at some point I thought, why am I trying to do something I don't want? Let me just stick with the Milton. Let me Milton. Let me not do anything else. Let me be in this terror. Let me do what I'm good at, which is being very catastrophic and in terror and in grief. And this is, you know, like this is my MO. So why don't <laughs> why don't I just embrace it? So I did exactly what I think you are talking about, this idea of intention and accident. I thought, well, what kind of poet am I? And I thought, I'm really, you know, a poet built on traditional poets and on on loving rhythm and on having really mastered meter meter and form when I was much younger because I wanted to be good at it so that I could learn how to play with it, um, which a lot of people don't want to do. They want to write um, or they have short lines or they have um, prose or they're doing different kinds of things. I wanted to do things with line breaks. I wanted to enjam. I was very um, excited about uh, John Donne and Unholy Sonnets and, and Hopkins, as I expect Jordan is too, from some of his poems. So I thought, let me go back into this traditional frame of mind and let me not think about what I'm writing so much and let me just sort of feel and and be in a rhythm. And so I, tr- I got into this strange, it wasn't a trance really, but I want to in retrospect describe it as that because it, it was a, a lifting of control over something I'm very good at controlling. So over time, I feel like I'm not really good at much of anything except writing poems, right? You know, I, I can do a lot of different things, but really my competence and skill, I feel at most, you know, I feel confident about when I'm doing something right, which isn't often, but when when I'm able to do it. So I thought, let me try to get into a place and let me shift into a traditional rhythm. Let me just feel the words. Let's not actually create the words, let them fall out of me. So I started, I read this article about this guy who was um, fielding a lot of calls from young people with enormous amounts of death in New York. Nobody, the funeral directors were overwhelmed. And so this really affected me. So I wanted to write about some sort of ode to him and then about walking and everybody kind of avoiding each other and then all sort of spilled out. And I tried really actively to push and push and push and write the poem, but as if I was just waiting for the next word to be inevitable in terms of language and rhythm, and then let myself try to write it down. And I tried to get into it by doing that. And then it started working and I stopped fighting my impulse to be more traditional, to be more rhythmic, to not do things that more contemporary poets tend to be doing, to write in terms of asking a question and trying to work some, through something. And, and, you know, my, my real question is, well, what if this was me? What if I'm next? What if we're next? And what, you know, so, I mean, it came out better the way I, better than the way I'm explaining it probably, but I think I started realizing, Oh, one can do this. Once you get to a certain space, maybe like music and improv in improvisation, the way I'm thinking. And, and, and so you, you obviously do this because you, you know, you wouldn't be the kind of poet you, you are Jordan, if you weren't doing this already, it's just that you're, thinking about doing it with this isn't the same thing as when you're actually in a poem and you probably feel it or when you're in a poem yeah. and you feel it. Yeah. You know, I was thinking too, this is something I, I, uh, uh, memory I bring up in class all the time. There's a, a, um, an essay that Don Justice published back, I think back in the seventies or early eighties called on meters and memory. It appeared in MPS, I think. And it was, um, it was about, um, what are the benefits of working with form and in in and he uh he said really it's it benefits the writer in two ways you know and one of which is that it is a um spur to invention you know because uh, if you're if you're in the you know if you're in the middle of a iambic pentameter line you know what you, you know you can't stop you've got to come up with something that'll fit and if you're rhyming on top of that you know that you have to come up with something that's going to rhyme with whatever the previous rhyme word is. And that makes you um, be more inventive than you might otherwise, because you have to, you have a problem and you have to to find out a solution from it. I I don't think, I don't remember if you went the next step, which is to say, yeah, and that's a way of, 
uh, allowing yourself to get past your ordinary consciousness that would want to say the first thing that came to mind that would you have to dig around it and find. So that's one benefit of the, of the, and the other benefit is that there's something reassuring about writing in rhyme and meter that you, uh, you're halfway through the iambic pentameter line and it scans the way you want to. It does the sort of metrical things, rhythmic things you want to do and then setting up the rhyme. So oh, yeah, well, at least I got that right. You know, so you you know, so as you're, you know, that encourages you to go forward and continue into the murky darkness that is the unwritten, you know, that is your unwritten poem that, that way. That's always meant a lot to me, those ideas that you're both um, reminding yourself that you're competent, you can do this, and you're also allowing for ac- the accident of a rhyme word to occur to you that wasn't the word that you expected and that tilts the poem in some other direction. You know, you're allowing yourself to say, well, I'm. I have a competence that will help me get through this. I also have a willingness to set aside my own desire for what this poem would be and let the poem be, you know, and let the poem shape itself that way. After all, what's to lose? If it goes in a direction that doesn't work, you just go back and try again. Um, but it feels at the time that there's a great deal to lose as you're, you know, as in, in the state of mind that you're in when you're working through, when you're working through it that way. Um, you know, and I really admire jazz improvisers say who i think have that same of those that same combination of abilities of you know experience and authority combined with a willingness to let it let accident occur and see what happens when you follow that accident instead of uh, instead of sticking with whatever the plan might be um and it really is an interesting state of mind isn't it i i, I mean the one of my when I first started learning how to play fiddle, um, my first fiddle teacher said, you know, what you really ought to do is you don't practice more than one tune a day. You practice one tune, you practice it over and over and over. Now, I wasn't disciplined enough to follow this. It's, there are too many tunes. It's like picking flowers. It's too tempting to keep going. But once in a while, I did. And I remember calling him up and saying, hey, Mike, you know, interesting thing happened the other day. I took your advice. I played the, this tune over and over and over. And I said, you know, it was really neat. I went into a kind of trance-like state. And he just said, yeah. <laughs> you know, finally, you got it. You know, it's not about, you know, it's it's where it's about where you are, not where you're going. You know, it's not about learning another half dozen tunes so you can play a session. It's about experiencing what's going on when yeah. the tune is happening to you. Embedded yourself into that, into that piece. Yeah. And oh. and then it's I, I read a post from a guy on Facebook, Alan Kaufman, who's a, who's a terrific fiddler, talking about that experience today. And he was saying, you know, at some point, the tune's playing you, mm-hmm. you know. And I think with any luck that happens when I'm writing too, you know, it's just the, the poem's writing me. And That's a beautiful I, description of it. Yeah. And, you know, you have all these happy accidents also. I mean, if you're doing, you know, I'm, I'm, I tend not to rhyme at the end of lines or doing, you know, traditional things and you're, I think, very good at that. But I see that you have a million, I mean, I straight, you know, you can just sort of track all the poems and have a million um, internal rhymes and off rhymes and, and the play with words is, it, it, it's endless and constant and relentless and and there's a thrill with language and and I love doing the same thing what could be more exciting than an off rhyme in the middle of the rhyme and then you you know you match up a consonant and then that is pushing the meaning in someplace else and then suddenly you're like no 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 that's all wrong it should be the opposite thing and you're like oh I'm fine being opposite as long as I can get these two k's together you know um <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, when I when I taught your book last uh, last term, and it was remote, so I was I was not talking to my students in person about Diane's book. I was reading what they their responses to it, which were really positive. They really enjoyed the book and they enjoyed your presentation. And it interested me that some of the poems they liked best were the poems about growing up in in India and that. And what they really liked about those 
were the details of like the road going through the hills or the you know the the real the real specifics of the scenes that you were setting and i think that they felt that way a couple of them like some of the kind of brooklyn breakup poems too you know the same way say emotions were really quite different in those but they had the same sharpness of, of observation that was that was go- going on and it struck me in the backyard poem that you were doing the same the same skill was uh was present there but there was a real difference of purpose i thought in them you know and the uh, the, the bombay poems say were mumbai poems were poems of memory right and the um poems in about being out in the backyard was a poem of attempted attempted and very difficult recovery and so that it wasn't a matter of describing something that was recalled it was and finding finding meaning in it it was a matter of assembling details that if you got it right might become meaningful in a a specific way or might overcome other meanings that they had that were more negative more threatening yeah, I don't. I, I think you're. That's a good good description of it. And and these details you carry with you through life. And this is what you know. Unfortunately, I I, I started thinking a few years ago. I'm like, well, what is there? And I have a few friends who've asked me recently, like, what now? What next? What's next? What's beyond? And I'm like, what do you mean? What's beyond? Um, prose, you know, but <laughs> old age. And I think everyone is thinking maybe prose, maybe old age. But there's also this sense of what else is there? And I remember a few years ago when I went to um, to Venice, I hadn't been to Venice since I was in college. And um, I went with my boyfriend and and I tried to tell myself, since I'm always sort of anticipating things and anticipating, I'm very big on anticipatory grief, sadly. Um, but <laughs> I told myself while I was on a ferry boat um, one day, just an ordinary ride, I told myself, this is life. And it really made sense in that same way that we we feel now in the pandemic that I was trying to get at before in terms of this space that Jordan has in his poems and that um, I'm trying to sort of feel my way through things and figure out what is the future. And maybe everyone is doing that and not sure what to feel, but you're like, oh, this is life, the ordinary thing, the walking up the hill. So I have one friend who stayed upstate or I had a house upstate and then ended up staying there. And then in the beginning, uh, maybe a year, year and a half ago, he was complaining about everybody here hikes they're always hiking what do they do there's nothing to do but hike what is my alternative germany and <laughs> and more recently when i oh, it would be nice to move upstate and he said it's lovely up here we can go for a hike and maybe swim in a in a swimming hole and i said well I, my legs are not that strong and <laughs> his attitude had completely transformed but and and he's a very very um well-read literary person so but the idea is still there. And, you know, what is this idea of becoming? And he's he's the one, Jordan, that I mentioned to you is, is now reading or trying to translate just for fun some sections of the parody. So looking for the exciting uh, similes and the beautiful moments. Um, but the idea is that the same thing from Venice or taking a walk in the park or you finding mushrooms or all these things, these ordinary things are what you have to sort of infuse meaning in because I'm not sure there is anything else. And maybe this is all there was in the first place. And that's why we keep going back to these other poets and saying, hey, Auden, Yates, what what hey, um, you know, what were <laughs> what were you doing back then? I see. So this is what you were talking about. Oh, I'm here now. And so you look back to them, you look back to the art, and then you think, ah, this you still have to live. You still have to do this. And 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 we forget because we are in it, we're Americans when we haven't um, been in in horror and terror really for a generation, a part of a generation. 
I actually would like to ask you about your Kintsugi poem, which you guys did not publish, but um, it was published somewhere else. So you have this idea of Kintsugi, of being of being broken, um, right? Of this ancient Japanese art of, of filling in the broken pieces with this gold dusted lacquer. It struck me that it was, it's a, well, you said you don't deal in metaphors now, how recently that, that poem was written, but of course it's a big giant metaphor for ourselves of you, me being cracked and broken and growing older despite ourselves and also just the world being utterly cracked and utterly broken. I'm not sure where um, the patchwork is, the patching is for that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but, the poem has. A, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm. I, you know, I, I, I thought it was. It was a. It was a beautiful poem with a with a, a lovely idea. And I mean, since you were talking about pottery and ceramics, this this idea that you can and create art, and and we were talking about the happy accidents that that happen. So here are some some happy accidents that this discovery of how this this thing can be done in a way that's beautiful without trying to hide its damage. And, and I think there's some poems in which you, you know, essentially say, I am damaged um, as we all are, you know, and <laughs> here, here are the cracks you have. Maybe it was within that poem um, as you're talking about these crack things. And that also has a lot of space in it, but I do think that, that this, this beca- becomes unintentionally or intentionally uh, a metaphor for our time. Oh, okay. Why don't I, you know what, that poem hasn't been published yet. So why don't you, Aaron, are you okay if I read it? And then you can, so, cause you won't have seen it cause it doesn't, it only exists as a, as TypeScript at the moment. Yeah. Um, and it's, amazing. and, and it's short, it's called Kintsugi. Um, it's dedicated to Sandy McPherson. Kintsugi, the second pandemic summer is even more beautiful than the first. The eerie long evening stillness of the suburbs, variations of green on a ground of asphalt. A broken thing may be made more elegant, more valuable, between the shards of the bowl's rough pottery, fine lines of gold-dusted lacquer. I would like to hand you the smoky in the mug I dropped years ago on the tile floor of another kitchen, a plain cylinder, thick-walled, gray, and unglazed brown. Think of this as a poem of exile, one ancient to another. No. Think of it as the courier who brings that poem, the steam rising from the road to nothing, is reply enough, the flash of gold above the green at sunset. So that was written as a kind of thank you because um, Sandy McPherson, who I'd known when she was, I was a student and she was a teacher at Iowa, had sent me a copy of her of her new manuscript that'll be coming out from Salmon Press next year. And I just loved it. I thought it was a knockout of a, of a book and very, very moving about, about several different kinds of, of losses that would seem irreparable and but also about the possibility of repairing those. But more more than the, that, the language was just, just line by line gorgeous, you know. And that seemed to me to be the real triumph of the book. You know, the the not um, you know the, um, the 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 story is one we need to hear told. The story that recovery from some kinds of losses that seem like they'll break you is is, is at least a, some kind of partial recovery is possible. That's something I think we, you know we desperately need to believe. But to tell that story and to have such a eye, such a focus on the way the words sounded and the way the words inter- interacted with each other, um, that that seemed to me like the real, that was the real moral of the story there. That could be, you know, the, that even in the face of suffering, that could still be done. Um, and I think that's something that, uh, that, you know, that Diana and I share is a conviction that poetry ought to be a stunning work of skill. At the same time that it is, it is 
if you like it moving, it can be moving. If you like it, to be honest, that's great. I, I never actually demand honesty in poems. So, that's, you know, you can, uh, but it has to be, a, it has to be a work. You know, it has to be a, a made thing that, that, that way. I wanted to write a kind of, and I, I, I often write in response to other people's work. And I, and I just liked Sandy's book so much. And I think it was Sandy who at some point introduced me to the Makintsugi, the Japanese uh, art of repairing a, repairing a broken piece of pottery using a mixture of lacquer and gold dust so that you see lines of gold running where the cracks were. And it just immediately flips the usual story of how, you know, the crack is the bad thing. You know, the crack is what wrecked your, your piece that the makes it lose its value. The auctioneer looks at the crack and the plate and says, no, we can't sell that. You know, this just turns that entirely in, in, entirely around. And I was thinking, you know, I, I walk, I walk every day. I live in a suburban neighborhood, luckily for me with woods nearby. And it's, I, I found this summer and last summer just uncannily beautiful. I mean, it's just, it never got brown here. You know, the, we never lost it. Still, I'm looking out the window. It's still hugely green outside. Outside, uh, The light and the sh- and the shadows of the trees on the pavement and the kind of vistas of, uh, of uh, between the between the houses, you know, it just was, I, I, I go out walking at what feels so bizarre because the world was just going to hell. And, you know, and all of us were afraid and I was, getting my groceries delivered, you know, and, you know, and avoiding, you know, making excuses to avoid seeing people. And yet it was really walking around. It was really lovely. And I, so I, that somehow started off the poem and then the, the, uh, the, I had to define what I was talking about in, in the second stanza. And it reminded me of uh, something I'd forgotten, a mug that I'd really regretted breaking. You know, that way it was a handmade mug. It was actually my wife had made it when she was in a pottery class. It was very plain and I thought very beautiful. And I, I'm still feel, obviously you could tell I still feel guilty about dropping it in the, in, in the kitchen. And I thought, what could you offer somebody who sent you a, a book like the one that Sandy sent me? And I thought, well, you would offer it, offer them something that you thought was permanently lost that couldn't have been the you know gone gone beyond repair and of course it's not really the mug but it would be the poem that is made is the sort of filling in the cracks the the cracks of the mug and i had in mind as i'm sure it's pretty obvious you know those um those wonderful um chinese poems of exile where one poet on one mountain is writing a poem to another poet on another mountain the same way i wish you could come over for a drink and you know, we, you know, too bad we're thousands of miles away. I really miss you. Here's a poem. Maybe you'll get it. Maybe you won't. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, and so that was. I th- I thought I thought very literally. You're just saying you're damaged. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think. No, can I just say something that I thought really was brilliant about this? So you have this the second and third line you have, and I feel like this defines maybe what I see the Jordan's syntax and and style and and maybe his personality a little bit at least as far as I know it. The eerie long evening stillness of the suburbs variegations of green and a ground of asphalt. So you have this, you, you know, a beautiful, again, I'm obsessed with this mimetic, beautiful way of, of organizing the line. And so you have eerie, long evening stillness of the suburbs. And you have all this lovely assonance, which reminds me of Bishop's poem as, you know, the, um, 
the C swelling slowly as if considering spilling over that beautiful line with all the, the slow movement and the C um, falling over. But you're, you know, the, the syllables are slowing down. You have no choice but to slow it down. This is beautiful form, beautiful meter. And then you have variegations of green on a ground of asphalt. And it's like, and it's, you know, a bit of music in there, but it's also a style. And somewhere in one of these poems in your book, I think about um, looking at paintings at the National Gallery Gallery in Ireland, you say it's all about the style. And, and, and here you are like, okay, here's this, this plaintive concerning world around us. And we're sort of walking toward it, or I'm walking toward it, or we all are. And, and this is, the slow movement of time, but I'm still going to do this. I'm still going to do my poems. I'm going to fiddle. I'm going to, you know, there's this excitement and and thrill that that you seem to get and that comes out through your poems to to a reader like me, anyway. And and it does seem to define the way you're you're bringing your poems through. And there's this this activity, this dynamism going on inside your head, and you can slowly start matching all of the little parallel um, internal rhymes and assonance and and and. Uh, moments of excitement or or rye ironies. It, it, there's you know there's a lot of stuff going on um, even with all that space. So those two lines really just hit me as something really unique. I want to circle back to to this idea because you guys have talked a little bit about process and form, but I, I was I was asking this to you guys earlier over email. The Marvin Bell question. Where Marvin Bell in this, and I'll plug this this feature on Airlight uh, we published. Marvin's last uh, talk that he gave, uh, an emeritus talk at Iowa, and he, it's called Bloody Brain Work, and he talks about the use of language a lot, and he has this quote where he says, one special word can characterize a sentence or a paragraph, and he goes on to use as an example his own poem to Dorothy and looks at the language choices he uses there. He ultimately concludes that the truth, and this is a quote, the truth about making art is that what is sometimes called inspiration likely occurred during the writing, not ahead of time. There's a lot there about the weight of kind of individual words in poetry, but also about the act of writing itself as the sort of generative force. You guys' discussion has already talked about this and circled around this a lot, but I'm just, I'm just curious what you make of that, those concepts that Marvin brings up. You know, I think that's sort of true and not true. I mean, I think it's true in that poem where he's, you know, and especially I have wrote down a few lines from it. And I think he's a terrific poet. You are not beautiful exactly. You are beautiful inexactly. You let a weed grow by the mulberry and a mulberry grow by the house. So one thing leads to another and one thing also inverts another. Um, but the exactly, inexactly is, feels like a happy accident. But what, you know, he he did these poems, these these. Uh, not, he, he indulged in this conversation over many, many, I don't know, a year or two over with, with Chris Merrill, also at Iowa, who leads the international uh, writing program. And, um, and that's when I first discovered them. And then I started up a correspondence with, with Christopher Merrill uh, about this because I was so wowed that we were, we were both lucky enough to be in an issue in Prairie Schooner together. And I feel that what he did with Chris Merrill, with he would write a poem and then Chris would write a poem back to him and he would write a poem and Chris would write a poem back to him. And they had a 70, 80 po- poems like this maybe. maybe. I think they had a whole book. Maybe they actually, they might've had a few books like this. And I was so wowed by this one because um, it, 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 you know, as a poet, you're so solitary and and often lonely. And here was a chance to not be that, to be sort of like a playwright where you get to work with other people. These were sort of this idea of inspiration um, or one word jogging something else, and you know, and and 
having the inspiration not be something in advance, but something that happens while you're doing something. So this is a little bit of playing with that, right? Because they have to respond, but in the active response, just like you forcing yourself to sit down your, at your desk, in the act of responding, at some point, something clicks or or maybe that poem just doesn't work that well. And then eventually the next poem might click, but you're still required to do this. And there is something interesting in that, you know, how much can you organize? And I do think you can organize yourself into some sort of uh, inspired state, but you just have to wait. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sort of similar to Jordan in that, you know, unfortunately I can't just sit down and produce something um, and work steadily for three or four hours. Um, poems come when they come, but I have found that I can constantly immerse myself, that I can make it a bit more organized, sort of like with I, this idea that within each essay, there is an embedded sermon and what is that sermon going to be? So within that, you can organize the essay a little bit better, maybe save yourself some time. So in the same way, I think that I can surround myself with poems and get into the meter and, and, and immerse myself. And at some point I just put everything down and I write a line. Um, and then I fix the line and then I put it aside and I start editing and then I go back to reading and then I read a little bit and then I put it down. And, and so it eventually, I think, can get somewhere like that. So I feel like a little bit of both. I don't think you can just sit down and write a poem and, and everything is just inspired, but I do think that you can put yourself in a position where, like Jordan, you said, you were open to, to more things and it is very hard to be open to things because you you grow with a certain style and you have a certain pleasure in that style and in your capabilities. So being open is a very difficult thing as a writer and as a person, but there is also this idea of being open to something churning that you're you're sort of fighting a little bit because it you don't think it's necessarily going to work and you kind of have to tell yourself maybe maybe it will anyway and sit down and write. <laughs> Maybe that's a rather mundane description of the fact. Uh, Marvin was my teacher. He was a terrific teacher. And what he, and I also realized when I was reading the material in Airlight and listening to David and Chris talk about, about Marvin that I'd learned to teach from him. I had just learned how to be a better poet. I learned to teach by, uh, by um, paying attention to the way he paid attention. And he was a he was a really terrific reader and listener to, poem, to poems. Um, and I remember, I still remember one day I was, I'd, I had written a poem. I, I took two or three workshops with him. I just, I just thought he was, he was helping me so, so much. And it's created such a good atmosphere uh, that I always would ask to be in this class if I could. And he, um, I, um, I'd written a poem that was really quite different. I'd been reading a lot of Whitman and it was a long line poem. It was much more descriptive than it usually was. It was, I'm sure, quite a bit all over the place in, in that. And I remember him starting a workshop discussing a discussion, but saying, well, you know, Jordan usually knows what he's doing in a poem. <laughs> and you, you can hear what would have come after that, that phrase. But it actually worked really well because he said, you know, I, it was a way of saying, I know I respect you. I know that you're trying something new here. And that's good. You know, that's good. I don't think it worked. Let's talk about why, why that was. And that, though I don't even remember much about that poem, I knew it set off two or three poems that I then wrote that were, uh, did allow me to go in a different direction than I'd been doing and do it a lot more successfully than that first poem did. So he had that way of paying attention that would give you permission to make mistakes and to go and, and to go on from them. And I think that is, that's because he didn't come to the poems that were on the worksheet with a 
he came with a sense of what good poetry was, but he didn't come with any kind of restrictive sense of what good good poetry was. And it's interesting to me because I, I I've I've seen him in his the influence on his poetry change his mind about something. I was really crazy about Whitman at that point. I, I don't think he was all that interested in talking about in talking about women. He was reading Dickinson really deeply and seriously, and that was affecting the work he was doing. But then later with the Dead Man poems, you could see Walt got to him after all. You know, that was, you know, the, um, and I always liked the idea that, you know, um, I remember having this conversation with him because I, I, I told him once that if I write a poet and I really actively dislike that poet, but I couldn't quite dislodge that poet from my brain in two years, that would be my favorite poet because that happened to be over, you know, over, over and over. Uh, and I think he, I think he agreed with me about that part of the poetic process. He had to be, be ready to change your mind, do a shift, even if it seemed like a 180 shift. I think there are an awful lot of really unfortunate pressures on poets and that they're only getting worse than they were when I was when I was starting out. I certainly felt anxious about a lot of stuff. I was anxious about publication. I was anxious about about jobs. Of course, I was anxious about getting books written and being respected by by people that all was, you know, that all the all of those things were, you know, uh, were 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 heavy on my mind. I think for poets who are writing now, it's even exponentially worse that way because there are so many more poets writing. There are so many more magazines getting tons of, you know, uh, you know getting tons of submissions. It's a stunner. If you're ever on a on a tenure committee, one of the things you do is call around and find out what the accept reject ratios of journals are, and it's really scary. There are um, there's the influence of social media, which we all use uh, entirely justifiably to promote our stuff. But every time I put a I put I put a poem that I've had up on, I know there are three people who are happy for me, and a bunch more who are cursing quietly into their tea the way I do. And you know, when when someone who's work I'm not crazy about puts up puts up something like that. And I just think it's it's tough to get all that stuff out of your mind when you're when you're when you're writing, and that's why I think um, it's so helpful to have advice like Marvin's to say, just see what's there, you know, start somewhere and see what's there. Your you know your vocabulary, your word, your sense of the proper word, is going to be one of the things that's going to guide you. Through a poem, through a poem, that lovely, exactly, inexactly joke that begins his the, his his lovely lovely poem for for Dorothy is so Marvin. You know, it's so much like the way you can see that kind of move in his poems. You could hear it in his conversations. You know, that sense of language is something that is serious play that, that way. And so that when he, um, I think the Dead Man poems are just loaded with that kind of uh, that that kind of. Um, that kind of discovery of double senses of of words or interesting twists that can be put on him, and you can see how you know every time he does something, it catapults him on into the next line or the next two lines or or or, or, or something. And I think he's got a wonderful sense of when to stop too, when to move on to the next thing that might happen in in inside inside a poem. And I think all that comes from that quality that I saw in him as a teacher, which was his ability to be in a state of attention to what was in front of him, whether it was a student's words on the page or whether it was his own kind of discovery of a particular word and how that could could 
be a lever inside the palm that that tipped over into some other, you know, some new and unexpected kind of content that that way. I'm so pleased to hear that Diane's writing method is every bit as scattered as my own. It's really reassuring. I now know why she never took a course with me. She never needed to. She already knew it. Um, and the, um, you know, and that sense of, yeah, I'm writing and then I, I read or change the change the song I'm listening to or something. And what I'm doing is looking for something else to tip me over into another set, into another state yeah. of mind that will help invent, help advance the help advance the poem. And the reason I brought in the pressures on poets is I, I have to say that I think it has when I'm in the right frame of mind for writing, it has nothing to do with the pressures of publication or academic productivity um or reputation it, it really all those things are always on all of our all of our, their minds and i think they're all really insidious factors in in, in it it's like you know people say oh you finished a book well, what are you going to do next you know i'm going to tell you to go away you're not helping me <laughs> um yeah um and um I love it when I hear about poets. I think Tom Gunn talked about this, about how after he wrote a book, he would stop writing for, for a while. Um, mm -hmm. Gunn's really one of my very favorite favorite poets. And just then on the poem started up again, he'd start up again. again that, that mm -hmm. And one of my former teachers once asked me after, my, after I got my first book out, he said, well, has there been a silence? Well, then, well. There had been a silence, yes, uh, and but the thing was that he he was not saying that he was saying that wait that's to be expected. Yeah. This is yeah. something that you know, not everybody knows, right? They have to discover, and there's this sadness, you know, and frustration with it too. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, everybody knows that feeling of well, I'm not going to write another poem like that. I don't know how I wrote that, mm -hmm. and, um, but yes, there's this. I feel the same thing after essays now. Um, maybe it's the same thing people feel after vacation sometime. Um, but but <laughs> <laughs> there's this. There's a more space. There's too much space. But you know, I want to pick up on something you just said about vocabulary with M Marvin B Bell because there is, you know, we we your vocabulary is really intense and I'm also really interested in vocabulary. If you have a bunch of really boring words, your syntax gets really skewed to the dull side and, and words become, you know, and the lines become more prosaic and, and they become less verse. And I'm not sure there's as many people writing verse um, as you talk about the pressures on poets and it's easy to get work published when you're writing um, stuff that isn't really quite intensely defined as verse. Um, where people might say this is more formal or it's formalist when it isn't at all. And, and there's a misapprehension about that, or misunderstanding, a misapprehension of what, what it's about. But this word vocabulary, you know, struck me in terms of lessons and teaching, because I studied with Robert Pinsky and Derek Walcott and for my master's. And there was, you know, something about, you know, I really wanted to learn. I was determined to learn as much as possible so that I could figure out where I was go where I was going. And, and I had Robert sit down and teach me, um, he figured out what I was trying to ask very, um, in my, you know, crazy jagged way. He said, I think you're asking me, what am I writing here? Okay. Let me tell you what lines you have. This is trochaic, uh, tetrameter. This is, um, iambic trimeter. This seems to be nothing particular. This here's a spondy with, uh, two iams and here's perfect iambic pentameter. And then we, I eventually taught myself how to write, 
um, perfect iambic pentameter. And then he said, by the way, you know, your skill does not lie in just writing and filling out the meter. It's in moving away from the meter. Now, let me show you how to do that. So I spent the year really learning and learning and learning and trying to get better at that. And, and he and Derek Walkup were very different. And I think they overlapped in Homer and Dante and some other poets, very different teaching styles. And Derek used to ask us to memorize. So as you're, you're telling us that story about song or, or piece of music you were practicing over and over and over again. Derek used to say, memorize a poem, memorize a poem, and you have to practice it over and over and over again. And I still do this and, and, and um, currently doing it with a Hopkins poem. And I'm now riffing off the Hopkins poem, but this, this idea, and he, he made us go very slowly. So he'd start reciting a poem. So I'm going to, I have a poem of viewers in front of me, the artist's parents are part of a poem, like a scene left out of Traviata, slow, slower, like a scene, slower like a scene slower, like a scene left out of Traviata. Perfect. You know, and <laughs> so this is one thing about reading is sort of an education, but connected to that was this idea of a vocabulary. It was one day I was trying to figure something out and he said, he used to make us take our bad poems and, and crumple them up and, and say, throw them in the garbage. And you'd say, okay. And I'll, and you, you're thinking, I'm just going to keep this. And, and you say, I'll do it later. And he goes, I want to see you <laughs> put it in the garbage. So, <laughs> so we'd make us throw these poems in the garbage, but there was one thing that was working. And he, he said, okay, I want you to stay after class because this is working, but you haven't figured out the right word here. So I'm going to sit here with you and you will sit at your desk and you will wait and you will figure out the right word. And he said, this isn't the right word. Think, listen, figure out the right word. Look out the window, look at the birds, look at the trees. I think we sat there for two or three hours and went through a bunch of words. And I sort of bitterly sat there thinking, I think this is one. How about this one? Nope. How about this one? Nope. How about this one? Nope. And then finally, at the end, he was you know, just so disappointed. And <laughs> he said, you didn't get it. And I said, I can't get it. What is it? What is the word? And he said, he had this word in mind. And finally, he said, illuminated. And I said, how am I supposed to come upon that word? And he said, it was the only word that fit. It was the only word that was inevitable. It was the only <laughs> word, the rhythm, the meaning, everything. And he was right in the end. And, and this is a useful lesson, one of the most useful lessons I've ever learned. I'm like, what is the inevitable word? And how much of poetry out there is inevitable? When you see something, especially with the poems that have are broken up on the page and very jagged and have a lot of space, I think, is this space inevitable? Is this next line inevitable? Why is there blank space on this line? Why is there not another word here? And place of this word. 